Well, this past Wednesday, Yvonne and I celebrated our, our 26th wedding anniversary. And um, been 26, thank you, it wasn't... Well, it was VBS, so we didn't really celebrate it, if you know what I mean. Um, I, we talked about, I was, I was in my office at home, and uh, uh, Yvonne was out there, and Hannah came out, and she said, you guys ought to go out for dinner. I said, that's a great idea, because it was Wednesday night. And uh, then Yvonne later said to me, she said, I'm just too tired, let's not, let's not go out. Kind of what VBS is. So I hope this week that we will we'll get out sometime to some place where you want to go, because that's how, how it works. Um, we were married June 27th, 1992. And if you do a bit of calculation, you think about it a bit. Uh, that's exactly one week before July 4th. Um, I always remember Yvonne's birthday is February 7th because that's a week before what? Valentine's Day. And so likewise, we were married a week before uh, July 4th. So on our honeymoon in Lake Arrowhead, California, where we were, uh, we did what many of you, I think, will experience this Wednesday when you'll go to some fireworks. And what we experienced then is exactly like what many of you will experience here in just a, a few days. And, and so I want you to think about where you're going to be in a few days. The fireworks come. We have some friends, family, maybe you got the same place you go all the time. Um, you'll probably be in a park someplace, maybe, and you find some blanket or find uh, a lawn chair you can sit on, a nice, comfortable place. You can watch the fireworks display. So I like to just imagine it, uh, just, just if, if you will. Rachel, could you turn off the lights? I want to imagine us, okay? The, the, it's dark outside, right? The, the fireworks shoot into the sky, and it goes, right, it goes like this. Boom, boom. And your part in it is... Ooh, all right, let, let's, let's, let's try that again, okay? You ready? Ba-boom. Ooh. Ba-boom. There we go. We're getting it. We're getting it. Ba-boom. All right. You got it. Oh, you turn the lights on. That's uh, exactly, you guys kind of got it, and you guys will all experience that, and I know you've experienced it many, many times before, that... Uh, when, when Yvonne and I went on our, our, uh, our uh, uh, 4th of July during our honeymoon, I remember, there was this kid, I can't remember, it was a little boy or a little girl, probably 10, 20 feet behind us, maybe 40 feet, I'm not exactly sure. But every time it said, ooh, ah, this kid said, do you remember? Beautiful! It's beautiful! And so what I say when I see these fireworks, oftentimes I say, Beautiful, and Yvonne and I have this secret connection, which is now no longer secret. It's all of you. You have so, if you're with me during fireworks, you say beautiful. I'm like, okay, thanks. That's wonderful. <laughs> you know, you know what it's it's about. But this picture of fireworks is the picture of our text this morning. It's a it's a reaction and a response to something beautiful and and overwhelming. It is a spontaneous act of praise and awe at, at what we see, and particularly in Romans. Chapter 11, verse 33 through 36, it's a reaction response to seeing the ways of God. My message this morning is that God's ways lead to praise. So if you haven't done so already, take your Bibles, open them up. Romans 11, 33 through 36. We've come to Romans 11 in our exposition. We've been at this almost two years through the book of Romans. I think I've told you before of a conversation I had about a, a year ago with a, a friend of mine, not at church, kind of we know some weaker things, and he asked about the church, and he said, what are you preaching on, Steve? And I said, uh, preaching on Romans now. He said, oh, is that six weeks, eight weeks, or what is it? And I said, uh, 
more like two and a half or three years. And he's like, whoa, never seen that. But it never grows dull, never grows boring because just the riches of the word of God is is there. And so uh, if you haven't brought a Bible today, page 947 of your pew Bible, I really encourage you to take that and uh, watch on. Um, Our text this morning is really the Apostle Paul giving praise to God in the light of the revelation of God. John Piper shared how this text was really a catalyst for what he called as one of his high points in his teaching career at Bethel College when he was teaching there in the Biblical Studies Department. It was 1977, the spring of 1977. This is what he writes. He said, I had spent the entire semester on Romans 9 through 11, leading a dozen advanced Greek students through the rigorous exegesis of these chapters. It was the final day of class, and the last class of the year, and I was drawing up the final arcs on the board to sum up all the relationships between all the units, and I drew one last oak arc over all three chapters, and from one side of the board to the other, and I underlined Romans 11.36 as the ultimate point of the entire section. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And before I could turn around, Piper writes, the 12 students behind me began to sing the doxology. I didn't ask them to. I didn't plan it. It just came out. And that's the way it was for Paul when he wrote. He comes to the end of these three chapters on the ultimate purposes of God to show the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, and he breaks into doxology as he closes. All theology rightly grasped leads the mind and the heart to doxology. The story of God is all about the glory of God. All revelation of the ways of God lead to exaltation over the wonders of God. And that's, that's really our text this morning. It is a, the theology of God leading to praise of God. God's ways lead to praise. It's as if these last four verses in Romans 11 is the finality of the fireworks display. When, when, when we're at, at that very end, those setting off the fireworks say, is there anyone that's not set off? Let's get, let's get them all going. And it's ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. And it goes on for five or ten minutes or so. And at the end, what happens? Almost every fireworks show you have, what happens? Spontaneous. Woo! I just spontaneous praise. It's the, the sky's lit up and our faces are toward the skies, the views and awes. And then that spontaneous clapping at the end. That's our text this morning, the finality. The finale of the fireworks of the revelation of God leading us to praise God's ways lead us to praise. So here's what I want to do. In order to capture a bit of the moment, I want to read this text, and then what happened in John Piper's classroom, I want to have happen here. So let's we'll sing the doxology when I finish reading. It says, oh, the depths. And, and even that word there, oh, it's like, oh. Right? It's the fireworks there. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. 
Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I said, now, men. Amen. Just pray, O oh, Father, I pray that I in some way might capture the wonder of these verses this morning. I pray that we would see you rightly. I pray that in all of our study and all of our thoughts this morning would turn to praise. That we would say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. May we say, salvation belongs to our God. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, before we spend some time in this text, I want to spend some time in the context. Because the whole power of this text is actually the context leading up to it. I mean, that, that's, that's what John Piper experienced. It's just the deep exegesis for a, for a whole semester, kind of finishing it all, it all crescendoed. And, and we've been doing that over some time and over some months, maybe not as intentionally as, as John Piper did. But, but we've got we to gotta catch this into context because in order to rightly grasp this conclusion, we need to catch the context. So these, these words really wrap up. This last section in Romans 11 really wraps up a Romans 11, really wraps up chapters 9 through 11 which Paul lays out in no uncertain terms the sovereignty of God. This is the response to the sovereignty of God. Now, if you remember our, our teaching outline here, sovereignty is one of the key words that we have used to outline the, the book of Romans. There are six words. There's sin, chapters 1 through 3, salvation, chapters 3 through 5, sanctification, chapter 6 and 7. We see security in chapter 8, and now sovereignty in chapters 9 through 11. And right this, this morning, we're right here on the border between sovereignty, and we start next weekend with service, with chapter 12, where it's really the response of how to live in light of all of this great, glorious realities of the gospel of Christ that he, he puts, puts there. Romans 9 through 11 is all about the sovereignty of God, but it's not, that's not the subject of Romans 9 through 11. The subject of not Romans 9 through 11 is Israel's unbelief in the gospel. God's sovereignty is the answer to that question. Right? In other words, right, the, the subject here is Israel's unbelief. In Romans chapter 8, Paul had, had just that great chapter 8. Paul gives several huge promises of our security in Christ. We're secure in the work of Christ. The Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Secure in his work for the believer in Christ, right? There's nothing that anyone or anything can ever do to affect our standing before Christ. In Christ Jesus, we're declared righteous, and what God has declared will not be ever changed. There's no condemnation, no fear of judgment. That's a great promise we have. And chapter 8 ends with a great promise that I'm sure he says in verse 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not only are we secure in the work of Christ, Romans 8, 1, we're also secure in the love of Christ, Romans 8, 38, and 39. For the believer in Christ, there's nothing that anyone or any being or any height or depth or this, this the spiritual realm, any other realm, any other ruler or power can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I, I have a friend of mine who, who says um, often, he says, just know that you're loved and you're cared for and you're appreciated. And there's nothing you can do about that. 
That's the idea of these verses. That God has said you are loved and you're cared for, you're appreciated, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't separate it from the the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. His love is fixed upon us and nothing can change that. That's the great promises of of chapter 8. But the big question that comes in chapter 9, well, what about Israel's unbelief? Weren't they recipients of great promises of God as well? Didn't God promise that they would be his people? Chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, that is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forevermore. Here they have the the covenants and the law and the promises. And, and, And even you just expand that to the Old Testament. They even have promises that God will put his law in their hearts, that everyone will know the Lord. But Israel, in Paul's time and in our time, by and large, is unbelieving. And so the question is this, what about the promises of God? How how can we bank on the promises of chapter 8 if the promises of the Old Testament didn't work for Israel? Can we expect those promises of being secure in the work of Christ, the love of Christ, to be fulfilled in us? And Paul says, absolutely God's word has not failed, and it all has to do with the the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 6 of chapter 9. It's not as though the word of God has failed. The failure of Israel to receive God's promises lies not with God or his word, but it lies with the scope of his promises that have been misunderstood. God never promised, never intended the promises for everyone in Israel. It was to the elect within Israel. Chapter 8, 9, verse 8. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It's, it's, it's Isaac and not um, Isaac and not Ishmael. It's Jacob and not Esau. See, God's promises go to his, his chosen people within the physical people of Israel. And those who receive the promise are those who in God's sovereignty, he decided. He chose to be his people. That's the whole message. That's God's sovereignty. Romans 9.15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, it it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Verse 18, God has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's the sovereignty of God. It's Paul's main point in Romans 9 through 11. Now, we may not understand it, but God's got everything under control. It's proceeding exactly as planned. Now, that doesn't nullify faith, doesn't nullify the responsibility of us all to trust in the Lord, doesn't nullify the need for us to go out and speak to others about the good news of Jesus because, chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on Christ will be saved. And regarding Israel, God will bring them back. He isn't done with them, though they're unbelieving. They haven't called on the name of the Lord. But he will bring them back because it says in Romans 11, verse 1, has God rejected his people? And Paul says, by no means. But God's got a timetable for Israel. Verse 25 and following, explain it. As you remember, we went through this. It was explained about five different times about how how, uh, Israel was hardened and that gave room for the Gentiles. But the Gentiles then, when they're all filled up, will, will come to Israel. And I think 25 and following is a good summary. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Where's that hardening come from? It comes from the Lord, right? He hardens whom he desires. He, he's merciful to whom he has mercy. How, how it works, I don't know. But this partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Right? So Israel's hardened until the number of the Gentiles, there's non-Jews, come in. And in this way, 
all Israel will be saved, as is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. And he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, God hasn't abandoned Israel. His promises will all come true to them. Oh, today finds them in unbelief, but there will be a day when revival breaks out in Israel according to God's masterful plan and time timetable. The nation would become a Christian nation. They will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for Jesus. And one mourns for an only son. And that's why Paul says in chapter 11, verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He is called Israel. He has his people in Israel. His calling is irrevocable. When that comes to pass, he will bring them in to his his people. And this plan is... is, um, Strange to us, difficult for us. We don't know how it all all works, but that's the whole point. We don't understand fully. And that's when Paul says to our text, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. See, God's plan is far beyond ours. He's working it out exactly like he's planned, and we simply need to to trust him in praise. So let's dig into our text, right? God's ways lead to praise. First of all, let's look at the wisdom of God. It comes in verse 33, and the point is this. The wisdom of God is far beyond us. It's beyond us. We can't comprehend it. We can't fully understand it. It says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Paul's point is this, is that God is God and we are not. He has his ways and we cannot grasp it. He, he speaks about the depth of it, right? When someone says something you don't understand or, or someone's speaking some deep things, you say, wow, that's deep. You know what that means? I have no idea what you just said, but you seem to understand it and I don't understand it. You're deep. And when it goes to all humans... Right? We're, we're just so far, but God's depth of his wisdom goes far, far deeper still. Let, let, let's even return to our, our illustration here of the fireworks. Do you understand how fireworks work? Dallas might be pretty close to be the only ones. He's into rockets and things like that. But do you understand how they shoot into the, into the sky and explode? Do you understand how the colors are created? My guess is that Not many of us. I know I didn't. I still don't. Um, But we just say, ooh, ah, and your new word is beautiful. But fires are not created to be understood. They're created to be enjoyed. But who understands the fireworks are the makers of the fireworks. There was an interview, a short interview with a chemistry professor. He was asked some questions about fireworks. He said, can you explain the chemical reaction that makes fireworks explode? Here's what he said. An explosion is more or less a very fast and intense burning event. In order to accomplish that, metal salts are mixed with chemicals, oxidizing agents, that cause very rapid oxidation reaction to occur. This reaction is very fast and exothermic, which means it gives off energy as heat, and any time you have very fast and hot reaction that causes an explosion, this launches the fireworks into the sky, and the heat from this explosion is what provides the energy to create the colors. Question number two, why don't they just explode on the ground when they're lit? What propels them into the air? Fireworks are like little rockets. They are indeed exploding, but in a controlled way that directs the explosion in a specific direction down so the fireworks shells go up. Question three, what determines the color of the firework? 
And maybe you don't know fireworks. Maybe you do know. But the, the colors is determined by the metal salts that are present in it. The heat that these metal salts experience excites the metal atoms to a higher energy state. And when the atoms relax back to their more stable ground state, they emit colors. The wavelength or color of light that's emitted when these atoms relax are characteristic of the specific atoms. Strontium glows red, sodium burns orange, copper burns green, etc. Other colors can be made by mixing these metal salts in the fireworks, which is called painting in the fireworks trade. Question number four. Are certain colors easier or harder to create? Blue fireworks are particularly difficult to create because the copper salt needs to a very precise temperature to be excited to the energy state that emits blue light. If it burns too hot or too cool, the color gets washed out into a lighter blue hue. Okay. I've explained to you. Are you understand that now? <laughs> no, some of you may be as confused as I am, right? You get a sense... But, but that's the point. See, when, when God's way, when God, when it comes to the ways of God, none of us are in a position really to fully understand the, the wisdom of God. And, and that's Paul's point in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. His wisdom and knowledge are, are far deeper than us will ever be able to comprehend. It's not that we're just not smart enough. It's, or it's not trying hard enough. It's that we aren't smart enough and we never will be able to comprehend it. It's like a dog trying to understand Shakespeare. It's just not going to happen. And we're just not going to understand all the ways of God because God is God and we are not. When we study some chemistry and understand fireworks and we can study some theology and understand a bit of the wisdom and knowledge of God and how we can plan the history of the world, though, and how, how he can bring a partial hardening upon Israel and how he can determine when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and how he will accomplish all this in the hearts of men. I mean, you ever thought about this plan? We're talking about thousands, millions, billions of people. God is working in his plan to work this all out, this plan of history. You know, kids play with dolls and, uh, you know, the dolls, the Lego kids or Lego toys or your Barbies or whatever, you make them do, you move them all like this. That's what God is doing with billions of people to enact his plan. Showing mercy to some, hardening others, still holding people responsible for their sin, yet being entirely just in his judgment. How he does that, our mind, isn't this a new thing right now? Like, right? Your mind explodes. Mr. Brown, you've been doing that. How do you do that? That's what happens. Just too much. It's beyond us. Paul's point is that it is beyond us. It is unsearchable. It is inscrutable. And inscrutable means unfathomable. We cannot fathom the wisdom of God. But here's my point, though. Rather than leading to speculation and doubt and disbelief, the surpassing nature of God's wisdom should lead us to praise. That's my point. God's ways lead to praise. Let's move on to the second point. The mind of God. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of a Lord or who has been his counselor, right? When, when you're needing some things happening, right, you go to someone wiser than yourself and you, you seek counsel and, and you seek help from somebody who knows more than you do. Had a good illustration of that in our home recently. Um, we are in the midst of kind of remodeling our, our kitchen a little bit. Yvonne has done a great job um, restaining all of our cabinetry. That is all done. Uh, we're getting a, a, a new countertop tomorrow, right? So I'm going to be going at that today, tearing out the old countertop. And, but we got a problem because the, elect, the electrical 
in our soffits, ran through the soffits, but we've taken our soffits out, so we got all these electrical cords trying to figure that out, how to do it. And um, so Nathan Gonnering was at our house the other day trying to give me counsel, like he's an electrician by trade to help, help me. And he's like, hmm, that's a big job. He gave some help, some counsel. Dirk was at my house two days ago, I forget when, something like that. And, and Dirk's giving me counsel. I've got to call into an electrician to try to help. Maybe he'll do it for me. But, but here, the whole point is that I don't know how to do it. I need someone else's help. I, I need a counselor. I need a help. But when it comes to God, right, is God going to come to us for any counsel at all? You go to someone wiser and smarter than you, and none of those apply with us to God. Who has known the mind of our Lord? Who has been his counselor? And the answer is what? Nobody. Now, this verse 34 is a quote from the Old Testament. It's a a quote from Isaiah 40 and verse 13, in which Isaiah is saying, Behold your God. We, We sang a song here this morning called, Behold your God. Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold, your God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold, our king, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. And that captures totally the spirit of Isaiah 40. When Isaiah is putting forth the Lord, he says, Isaiah 40, verse 9, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Isaiah then proceeds to speak of the might and power of God. For who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Who's marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance. God is so mighty that he holds the oceans in the palm of his hand. You can't hold much. Maybe with two hands you can hold a little bit more, but you can't hold very much with one hand. And God holds all the oceans, the water of the oceans in his hand. God is so mighty, he reached out with one hand from thumb to the end of pinky, and that spans the universe hundreds of millions, billions of light years across. God so mighty, he puts all the dirt of the mountains and the hills and the earth and can put them on a scale. Isaiah 40, verse 15 says the nations are like a, a drop in the bucket and are counted on, on the, the dust, on the scales as nothing. He takes the coastlands like fine dust. He, 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 take, he takes all that that's on the coastland, he kind of picks it up. It's like, like dust that accumulates on your furniture. In other words, all the billions of the people on earth are like a, like a drop in the bucket. He sits above, Isaiah 40, verse 22 says, sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. You pick the strongest ruler with the strongest nuclear power, and God would just consider that nothing. It is so small to him. And in the midst of that context is when he says, Isaiah 40 and verse 13, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did God seek, and who made him understand? Who taught God the path of justice, and taught God knowledge, and showed him the way of Understanding, And the answer is nobody. The mind of God is so far behind us, beyond us, we have no right 
to question him or his ways. Rather, God's ways should lead us to praise. And sadly, when it comes to this very issue of the sovereignty of God, you will find many who will argue this point. People can't understand how our salvation is totally dependent upon the Lord, and yet how God holds us responsible for our sin and will judge those who don't believe. And they're arrogant to say, that cannot be. You cannot hold someone responsible for something that you're the one who initiates and brings to pass in the first place. It makes no sense. And they argue with God and they don't believe it. And they have failed in verse 34. Who's known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And so many people think, I'm God's counselor. I'm going to tell him how he's got to act in justice. And I simply built before you that the mind of God is bigger than the mind of man. He understands what we cannot. He doesn't need to go to us for counsel. We aren't his teacher. Rather, we need to sing his praise because God's ways lead to praise. That's the whole point here. Let's go on. Number three, the riches of God. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This comes from Job 41 and 11. And I trust you remember the story of the book of Job. He was a righteous man, blessed by God in all his ways. Had a beautiful family, had treasures beyond many. He was generous and gracious, and yet the Lord took it all away. His wealth was destroyed by invading nations and fire from heaven. His children were destroyed in a great wind, perhaps a tornado or a hurricane or something. His his health was taken away. He was left to writhe in pain, and in his pain he argued back towards God. The book of Job is this dialogue between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They maintain that God punishes only the unrighteous people, and Job was being punished, therefore he must be unrighteous. And Job was saying, no, I'm righteous. And and you can read through there as proofs about how righteous he was. He was perhaps probably the most righteous man in the land. And he said that God is, is punishing me unjustly. He's being the one who's unrighteous. And back and forth it goes for pages and pages and pages as they debate the problem of evil. But finally, God comes on the scene in the last four chapters, five chapters of the book, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42. His last five chapters of the book, Job, God comes on the scene and says, Okay, Job, dress yourself like a man. And here's the beginning of his words. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. If you're so smart, oh, Mr. Job, answer that one, huh? That's just the first question. And an entourage of questions came. Who determined the measurements of the earth? Surely you know, Job. Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the deep or walked into the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know all this. Do you know all this, Job? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have have you seen the storehouses of the hail? And on and on he goes. For the sake of time, I just go to Paul's quote, Job 41, 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? God says, have you given to me anything that I need to repay you? Because the idea is God has everything. He's created everything. It's all his. You can't give God anything to put him in your debt. And then after four chapters of this questioning, Job's humbled. And he says, the beginning of chapter 42, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I repent in dust and ashes. And Job's response is the same that Paul's seeking one of worship. Because God's praise, God's ways lead to praise. And particularly here in verse 35, just to open it up a little bit, the point is that God's riches are far beyond ours. As creator, he owns all things. The earth is the Lord's and all that fills it, Psalm 24, verse 1. God is in debt to nobody. 
He owes nobody anything. Nobody has given a gift to the Lord. He's not under obligation to give anybody anything back. We are in his debt. He is not in ours. He's the sovereign and we are the subjects. And our role is not to argue that fact. Our role is not to resist him in any way. Our role is to worship the Lord. Our response can only be praise because God's ways lead to praise when you fully understand and grasp who God is. Let's turn to our last point. We've seen the wisdom of God, the mind of God, the riches of God, and now we come to the glory of God. The whole purpose of, of earth, the whole purpose of ourselves, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is the whole the whole end of Romans 9 through 11, the whole end of the sovereignty of God, it all comes to him. It's all focused on him. It's all about him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's a great summary of Romans 9 through 11, that that all things come from him, that all things are through him and all things are to him. I mean, that's past, present, future, right? Idea, source, means, end. I mean, it's all, it's all there from and through and, and for. And you just think about Romans 9 through 11 speaks about how our salvation is entirely from the Lord. It is, it is from God. It's entirely on the Lord. He's the one that chooses. He's the one that grants repentance. He's the one that grants faith. And apart from God working in us, we would be natural minds that don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. We would be dead in our sins, but God needs to come and make us alive, and He does. All things are from Him. Our salvation is from Him. All our salvation is through Him. It comes through Jesus entirely. We are saved by Jesus. We're not saved by our own merit. We're not saved by our own intellect. We're not saved by our own talents or giftedness or inheritance or blood or anything. We're not saved by any of that. We're saved solely on the merit of Jesus Christ who died for us. Our salvation is entirely through Christ. It's through Christ's sacrifice on the cross that he, he opens the way into the kingdom of heaven. He took our place, like that jail illustration said. He went to jail for us so that we could be set free. And our jail was basically sin and condemnation. He died on the cross, nailing our sins in his body on the tree, Colossians chapter 2. It comes through Jesus Our salvation is from him, it is through him, it is to him. Our salvation is ultimately for him. In ages to come, in heaven, it's going to be all about Jesus. Revelation 5.12, the the saints are singing, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Worthy is the the crucified one, the one who died in our place, the one who who was, was our sacrifice for our sins. He was the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's all for him. Our salvation from first to last. From before time began to eternity future, it's, it's from him and it's through him and it's to him. God's sovereignty should lead us to praise. God's ways lead to praise. Well, I want to close with a hymn that was written by James Montgomery Boyce shortly before he died. He was a, a, a longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I remember um, when we first got married, we listened to James Boyce quite a bit because he was on Moody Radio. We're living in DeKalb and just had a tremendous Bible radio hour, Bible study hour, something like that. You can pick him up on the Internet. But he, he got diagnosed with, I think it was brain cancer, liver cancer, some kind of cancer. And uh, he passed away within a couple months. Um, 
But one of his last great works that he did is he wrote some hymns. He wrote some hymns called uh, Hymns for a Modern Reformation. He wrote 12 hymns, and they are, they are not sung very much today because they're so deep and so rich and theologically packed. Um, though we used to sing them in the early days of our church. Um, maybe we can resurrect some of these, Ryan. Um, but here's one, the very first one that was written, Give Praise to God. It's even written, it was the first of the new Reformation hymns to be written. It was written for the 50th anniversary celebration of the Bible study hour on September 12, 1999. And uh, this is what he wrote. This is a poem around these verses, and I trust that you will see how it, how it works out. He says, Give praise to God who reigns above for perfect knowledge, wisdom, love. His judgments are divine, devout, his paths beyond all tracing out. Come lift your voice to heaven's high throne and glory give to God alone. No one can counsel God all wise or truths unveiled to his sharp eyes. He marks our paths behind before he is our steadfast counselor. Come lift your voice to heaven's high throne and glory give to God alone. Nothing exists that God might need, for all things good from him proceed. We praise him as our Lord, and yet we never place God in our debt. Come lift your voice to heaven's high throne, and glory give to God alone. Creation, life, salvation too, and all things else, both good and true, come from and through our God always. And fill our hearts with grateful praise. Come lift your voice to heaven's high throne. And glory give to God alone. God's ways lead to praise. So let's pray to him right now. Oh, Father, I pray that we as a church might see and grasp and understand and embrace the glorious means and ways and plan of your salvation. God, that you are the one who shows mercy to whom you'll show mercy and you harden whom you will. And we are eminently thankful, God, for your mercy and grace. For those of us who believe and trust in Christ, you, you have shown yourself so merciful and gracious to forgive us our sins and our transgressions as large as they may be. God, simply by looking to Jesus, not works that we do in righteousness, God, only by your grace and your kindness we we thank you for that, oh God. And I would pray that even as we think about your plans of the nations and your plans for the world and your plans for Israel that are far beyond our minds, I pray that we might not question or doubt or argue, but simply embrace everything that we, we know because you've revealed to us that you have a promise for Israel and that will come when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And Father, we look forward to that day. Um, God, and until that day, God, I pray that we would really share the good news that believing in Christ Jesus is the path to eternal life, that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, God, so be a Savior even today, we pray. Would you pray for the kids that came to Vacation Bible School as they heard the message of Jesus? May they believe and trust in you as well, our parents as well. God, we, we so want their good. God, we so want them to know and love Christ and to know the, the freedom that comes with that. God, may we be a worshiping church. May we be a church that gives all praise and all glory and all honor to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.